0: Good morning and welcome to Legal Defense. I'm Kirk O'Bear. Wow, what a wild world we find ourselves in. And uh, I've been asked by several listeners to talk about my perspective on the goings-on right now in Ukraine. And it has partly to do with the fact that uh, most of you know I was an operations law officer When i was in the united states air force in the in the judge advocate general's department and uh, it was my job to have a thorough understanding of international law the law of armed conflict the law of war um and basically how um to work in legal aspects of both restraint and proportionality as it relates to um, field operations. And this is a very, very interesting situation because we find ourselves in a situation where once again, like many times in the history of armed conflict itself, uh, we see that this is a guessing game where uh, different uh, entities don't trust each other. And take action based upon, you know, the fear of the unknown. And that's really how pretty much every war has ever started Um, going back for ages and ages. um, Most uh, incursions into, you know, other territories are primarily based upon that entity's uh, fear that. Failing to do so would sacrifice a strategic advantage in some way, and it also assumes the inevitable nature of the conflict itself. So I hope I don't get too philosophical here, but basically um, I want to comment specifically on Vladimir Putin's um, statements that he's been making recently, which really need to be put in correct context. The gist of what the complaint that Putin has been making is that um, there had been a promise that certain eastern European countries would not become NATO alliance members and that uh, doing so presents a threat to Russian um, the integrity of their own borders now we're talking about Poland and the Czech Republic and um, not Ukraine right now but there's a fear that Ukraine would become part of NATO but let's clarify there's never been any such promise and to say so suggests that you know perhaps the United States or other powers that be have the ability to override the um, sovereign choices that any individual nation in Europe might make on their own. It kind of ignores the fact that if Poland wishes to be a NATO country, it's a decision that Poland makes, not the United States. And it's not a game of chess where it's a one-up if uh, somehow NATO lures these countries into that alliance. So the word alliance is very important because, again, that's, if you recall back how World War I and really the precipitating factors in, even in World War Two, were started, it had to do with the existence of alliances and um, the, knowing that certain promises are made uh, to defend other countries within that alliance now in world war one it was a bit more confusing because some of those alliances were based on a handshake or were entered into in bad faith to begin with but also were not publicly documented um so that adds many more layers to the confusion but what we're talking about here is this really untrue allegation that there had been some sort of representation where and how who knows what he's referencing, but there's nothing publicly on the record that says that the United States or England or France or anybody said, uh, hey, we'll make sure that Poland and the Czech Republic don't become NATO nations. Um, never happened. And by the way, it's uh, it, it would be preposterous to to assume that any one nation or group of nations had that power that's contrary to the entire uh, concept of NATO. It's a a voluntary (laughs) alliance. I mean, you don't just get, you don't get co-opted in and forced to do things. But, you know, this is sort of the propaganda that Putin is throwing out there as if to justify any and all action that the underlying principle here, and it just goes back to a centuries-old dispute. And you know, don't forget, Russia is currently, you know, occupying a foreign territory by having uh, invaded the the Crimean region of, you know, Ukraine. And the fact that there are hundreds of thousands of russian troops amassed on the border um although under the law or if there if you can call it that it is not um, in and of itself a hostile action it's something that um can be perceived as a potential threat so you know now the fact that the united states is actually sending troops to the eastern european region Um, is being viewed as an act of hostility when, in fact, it's really no different than lining up uh, troops prepared for what may happen. There was breaking news just yesterday about uh, intelligence that U.S. officials have received that, um, and I believe it was through some sort of intercept intercepted communications that the Russians plan on staging a fake attack from uh, a foreign force and basically, you know, alleging that something happened that that won't <laughs> in order to justify some sort of legal action. But I want to take a step back because, you know, the, the way that our relationship with Russia has been, um, I can say probably has not gone as hoped for or planned since the you know dissolution of the Soviet Union and i can harken back to those days when you know the cold war if you want to call it you know well, of course you could call it that it is that um was you know there were clearly defined you know ideologies and there was no confusion about uh, one completely different uh, concept of how a society should operate versus another completely different ideology. So the confusion starts when you know Russia becomes basically a you know quasi-capitalist country, and I say quasi-capitalist because um, the opportunity with the Soviet Union crumbling for corruption to work its way deeply entrenched into the system which survives till today was basically rampant i mean think about the massive resources of the soviet union that basically became up for grabs in a country that became divided in terms of various different you know approaches with this overarching idea that you know capitalism will cure all just like socialism was supposed to cure all right um but it's not that simple. And, of course, just like it existed under the Soviet era, there were haves and there were have-nots. There were people that had um, found ways to you know, basically uh, propel themselves into um, greater wealth based upon positions they held and so on. And that was a sign of basically the corruption within the Soviet Union that ended up... Um, destroying that system of government in and of itself. And, you know, over the years, uh, the popular opinion uh, definitely shifted away from the, um, you know, the opportunities that uh, communism just doesn't afford individual citizens. Well, you know, we still have tremendous uh, economic problems in Russia that have not been solved by the creation of oligarchs and people that control um, not only um, financial aspects of how the country and business runs, but also we see continuing propaganda that was you know, a remnant of the Soviet era. So just kind of setting the backdrop here in terms of what the problem is and all sorts of different things that could end up happening. But I want to talk a little bit more about the complexity of modern warfare when we come back right after these messages. One thing that needs to happen, um, I think the government, our government, the United States needs to put much more effort into um, educating the public on the nature of cyber warfare and what, what um, impact it truly has on uh, American citizens and our everyday lives. Now, of course, we hear reports of these sort of attacks that occur And uh, Russia has been engaging in this type of activity for uh, regularly for a long time. And we hear about it. And I I know that there's this careful balance that must be struck because, on the one hand, the purpose behind um, a cyber war attack is really the same as a terrorist attack, and that is to um, disturb the... um, basically the stability of an economy or to manipulate the public opinion with regard to uh, how people have faith in their own government or their own government's capability. We've, We've seen this, of course, with Russian interference in our own elections and what the consequence has been by really dividing our country along polar opposite lines. And a lot of that has to do with Russian interference. A great deal of it has to do with Russian interference. But, you know, our government, of course, does have to be careful about (laughs) publicly uh, discussing all of the countermeasures that are taken by our own intelligence officials and our own experts in that area, because uh, revealing that capability to the public really just kind of reinforces the point of the cyber attack to begin with, which is to cause confusion, unrest, and so forth. But... I will say this, if you look at that type of um, attack on another country, which we're attacked on a pretty regular basis by Russia and other foreign influences. And you hear about it sometimes, but you don't hear about it other times. And, you know, this has the potential to be kind of the perfect weapon when it relates to um, an attack on on a foreign adversary. And I say that because it doesn't have the characteristics of traditional warfare where, you know, physical bombs, rockets, and bullets are, are utilized uh, against individual human beings. It has this less-than-violent approach, or a, a appearance anyway, but it has the ability to cut the knees off of... Um, the adversary in, in dramatic ways that actually affect you and I, and the capability that has been, there's been a lot of emphasis and a lot of, um, you know, research investigation. We spend lots and lots of taxpayer dollars, um, building this level of both, the ta- uh, defense and, you know, uh, offense when it relates to this particular area. But, It hasn't happened on a large enough scale where you would, you know, it actually would completely disable a country from engaging in any of its normal activities. But that is ultimately the capability of, you know, a widespread cyber attack on the infrastructure of another country. I mean, we used to hide under our desks when we were kids in school because we were preparing for the inevitable nuclear blast. That would completely both disintegrate and also render useless geographic areas of our country, thereby interrupting the infrastructure um, of normal life. And of course, you know, regular citizens, not just military people, were on guard. I remember it well. Uh, maybe you do too. Um, but this is something that, if in its actual design format, um, has the potential to. Completely um, interrupt and perhaps destroy our entire system of uh, communication, um, water, energy resources, um, transportation resources. All think about how in intricately involved our country is and dependent upon all of this stuff working correctly. And it's almost like you could plant a, a little seed in there and it could grow into. Um, a gigantic problem that has repercussions everywhere throughout the country i mean it's sort of like remember when we were worried about the y2k theory that everything would stop working and all it there was a it never happened but there was this idea that there could be one computer one outdated computer somewhere in the system that wasn't able to Function because of the, the change in dates that occurred with the, the turn of the century. And that would have a ripple effect and basically disable the entire um, process. Now, it didn't happen, first of all, because um, I think the theory as to how that would happen was overstated, but also there were, you know, measures that were taken to prepare for that and be extra sure it didn't happen. But still, you remember um, when, the, when Y2K came along, we were all just kind of like holding our breaths because no one was exactly sure what was going to happen. And again, a lot of that was just kind of crazy public opinion. But, you know, when it really came down to the possibility, everybody contemplated that. Well, it, you know, that's a good example of if it had happened the way that we feared it would that, that's what cyber warfare looks like in an all out attack it's it's like a nuclear weapon and the reason why it has such appeal in the modern warfare era is that you know it doesn't have the visual and you know gut-wrenching horror of you know dead bodies that occur from bombing and invasions and so forth and you know, one country can comfortably sit behind their computer screens while the other one languishes. So, you know, this is the look of modern warfare and, and where it goes. You throw into this, um, you know, what really is uh, an unfortunate and bizarre situation where Russia is holding on to, and, and tell me if this sounds familiar, holding on to some sort of historical and geographic claim that Ukraine belongs uh, as part of Russia. And if you go back over the history of, you know, land acquisition in Russia, back when it was, you know, <laughs> uh, a monarchy, um, back when the ruler of, rulers of Russia descended from, you know, royal blood, Queen Victoria in particular and you know the whole notion of there being sort of an imperialistic view of the sovereignty of one's country depended upon the land that you had now Russia has always been a very large landmass but um, you know that particular territory that particular area especially the Crimean Peninsula has been the subject of battles and wars you know over centuries and um, so a claim to a historic, um, right to that territory. Doesn't that sound a lot like words that were said by Germany in World War II or Germany in World War One, or, <laughs> you know, the, uh, contested, uh, Land in the Alsace-Lorraine region, you know, switching sides back and forth over the years. First it's German, then it's French, then it's German, then it's French. All this stuff that, you know, over a contested area. Now, you'd think in a modern and uh, civilized society that people within a particular region, especially if it is, you know, a recognized in most of the world, a lot of the world anyway, a recognized sovereign state, you know, called Ukraine, that the people in that country would have the ability to determine their own fate. And this is why, adding to the confusion, as you know, the the quote-unquote invasion of the Crimean region was not, um, you know, at least from the so, uh, the Russian perspective, not a true invasion because they were pro-Russian um sympathizers that basically allowed that to happen. And make no mistake, there are plenty of people, not the majority, but some people anyway, in Ukraine that do uh, have loyalty to Russia rather than Ukraine. So, man, this is just like (laughs) every stage that has been set for every major world conflict that's occurred in the past. And you know, I'm just fearing that it has all that, um, there, but I think we're going to see some behind the scenes, uh, messing around with, uh, you know, as I said, cyber attacks and things like that. And, um, you know, I'm not trying to be alarmist here, but who knows we could wake up tomorrow and your house has no electricity because Russia did something to us. It's actually realistically possible. Um, now, Of course, we spend a lot of money and a lot of resources trying to prevent that. And there are attempts, you know, you hear about it once in a while, but these are like little ways to see how far a foot can get in the door. Um, And and it could turn into, you know, a very, very serious situation for really the entire world. We'll be back in just a moment. I just want to give a little brief comment. And of course, I'm biased on this area, but in this area, but. You know, the creation of the U.S. Space Force seemed like, you know, a neat thing when it happened. But um, we, we did have a Space Force since we've been doing things with space. And it was used to be called the U.S. Air Force. Um, and I'm not being facetious here. All of those functions that now are part of this, you know, odd little <laughs> new force um, were already being done Primarily by the Air Force, in cooperation with other branches of the service. But one major, major component of that—not just space activity, space exploration, space monitoring, early warning, and all that other stuff—is that um, you know the intelligence factor that goes into uh, monitoring and and uh, understanding what other countries are capable of doing was a major component of both, um, the military and civilian agencies within our country that, you know, had been building expertise and technological know-how over decades and to make a splashy announcement that, oh, now we're going to have a space force. You know, a lot of the insiders know that this, this kind of created this odd disruption And in many ways, there are those that say it makes no difference. It's just slightly different with a different kind of name, and that's fine. I get it. But, you know, there's a lot that goes into um, intelligence, counterintelligence, and everything else that um, I I think we're going to be dealing with um, fairly soon here. Now, hopefully, hopefully, the way that this all goes is that it's some saber rattling. There's some uh, compromise there's some, uh, you know, restraint shown. Nobody goes in and, and does something stupid. But you can see how, if again, you got to study history to hope that it doesn't repeat itself, but it always does, right? You know, history repeats itself. And we are doomed to repeat it if we don't learn it. But in spite of our efforts to learn it, it does. It does repeat itself. So, you know, I remember when I was a kid and... You know, Vietnam, the Vietnam conflict had drawn to a close. There was an overall very, very negative attitude about the United States being involved in any kind of world conflict. And, you know, although we were entrenched in the Cold War, there was a long period of time where really, you know, a pretty, pretty lengthy period of time where there were no active armed conflicts that the United States was involved in for a while. And so when I enlisted in the Air Force, it was like, you know, total peacetime, aside from, you know, the Cold War, which was a stable war. Um, But, you know, the the backlash for the United States having been involved in uh, a war that many people thought we had no business doing has been, you know, a component of pretty much every conflict that the United States has ever experienced. And for that matter, you know, it's always a feature of every war. You know, um, if you really get into detailed study about the essence of the the, the brewing of even the American Revolution, um, the War of 1812, the Civil War, the war between the states, you know, and, and every conflict that occurred after there, there's always been... Uh, and it's not uniquely American, but it's it's a strong sentiment in our country that avoiding conflict should be the goal. And it's a good goal because once you start something, it's very hard to finish it. Remember, people thought that World War I would be a war that would last, you know, on all sides. They thought it was a war that would last a month or two. And... <clears throat> that was a terrible miscalculation because it went on for years and years and years of stalemate and you know all the stories of trench warfare and and uh no man's land being uh you know there being um gains and losses in the measured by 50 yards and the tremendous loss of life that occurred over a 50 yard plot of land that maybe one on one day and then lost the next day. And many, many people die as a result of that. But, you know, going back to this overall sentiment that, you know, you can expect to have happened after any kind of uh, conflict occurs, the United States has traditionally said, we're not going to do that again okay <laughs> that that was a bad idea like you know after the after the united states entered into world war one uh they were like oh no that i mean that was just yeah okay the great war is over but never again we're not going to rush to anybody's aid and it took you know the bombing of pearl harbor to force the united states to take an active role in the second world war so again i don't know if this is going to turn into something like that but it has the makings of it and it's just interesting to talk about the fact that when drawing a line in the sand and a lot of tough talk on both sides you know what about the people of ukraine i mean you know (laughs) that that president who's there trying to assure his own people that, hey, you know, I know it feels like we're the tennis ball in the middle of this tennis match in the world and we're getting knocked around back and forth, but really stay calm. Nothing to see here. Uh, Not a problem. We're fine. Everything's good. Um, Yeah. So the problem with believing anything that Vladimir Putin would have to say on this subject is that Russia has evolved into a country that operates on a a level of power that is born from corruption. Corruption within the government, corruption in their dealings with other governments, corruption in terms of backdoor, side door dealings, understandings, lots of money changing hands. Influencing not only our election process but other elections throughout the world, creating instability throughout the world is basically this scheme. And I'm not attributing um, ill intent where it's not deserved. This is this is something that has evolved again because you know the nature of Russia and what it's what it's turned into. You know, experiment after experiment that. You know, the the Soviet experiment was a very long one that didn't work. And we we come into this, you know, if you want to call it a new era, even though it's been quite some time now that Russia has been operating as a, you know, non-communist country. Um, All of the factors that lead to opportunistic, um, you know, subjugation of the will of people. And look, you know, what was what was the whole the whole idea behind the dissolution of the Soviet Union freedoms the freedoms of the people they're no longer going to be, gonna be bound by you know a government that tells them what job they will do how much uh, they can live on and providing every aspect of their life and spreading the wealth you know although it didn't really work that way but the concept was spread the wealth amongst all citizens everyone gives everyone receives that's the idea um that was Rejected as a, a manner, a way of government, a manner of government. The, the Soviets, the people in the Soviet Union had had enough of um, the problems that eventually show themselves. And I'm not, I shouldn't really say eventually, because it was always apparent. Um, but part of that, in order for any system of government like that to work, there must be, by definition, uh, control over... Public opinion, propaganda, and we we know there's tremendous examples of how Soviet propaganda used to work through fear, um, through you know basically the threat of imprisonment if you were a dissenter or a dissident, and you know you would think that if that was part of what Russia intended to abandon as part of its past, and if the whole goal here is to embrace. A more uh, free form uh, type of society that encourages capitalist ventures, that one of the things you do away with is that aggressive propaganda. Well, not so. Didn't happen. And Russia maintains, um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, we see it, in, although they deny it, but you know what happens when somebody um, criticizes the Russian government? if you're a Russian citizen, no matter where you are in the world, well, you end up drinking a cup of tea that has, um, you know, plutonium in it, and you die, stuff like that happens. Um, So, you know, I I don't want to turn this into an ideological battle of um, gigantic proportions, but I'm just pointing out that the potential impact for where this could go, and hopefully doesn't Lead us so, um, we'll be right back after these messages. So, I want to kind of go into the point that I started with here, and um, as I said, I used to teach uh commanders in the air force about the law when it relates to engaging in warfare activities, The, the military is created to engage in that activity by its nature to defend our country, which includes um, the uh, waging of war. So um, there's something that we, we called, we, I don't know if we, if it's really even worth maintaining the uh, possibility that there is such a thing, but we used to refer to it as the law of armed conflict and, and the law of war. And the thing that's fascinating about this is that there has always been a combination of, you know, we say written code, not law, but written code, as well as um, tradition. And those two things together um, are supposed to maintain the integrity, the moral integrity behind waging war. And when I say written, I mean things like the Hague Conventions um, and Other agreements that countries have been actual signatories to, where, you know, it's an unenforceable yet, you know, um, solemn promise that certain things won't happen. And that normally has to do with uh, atrocities that have been committed in past wars and there being a um, prohibition, a self imposed prohibition on those practices. The theory behind this is that if one self-polices um, the integrity of engaging in warfare and let's say we as a nation the united states we will not engage in torturing uh, prisoners of war we will treat our prisoners of war with dignity and um, will feed them and keep them safe and will not arbitrarily kill them if they have surrendered the hope is that the enemy whoever that may be would abide by those same rules. These concepts were all envisioned in the context of identified nations that have identified governments and identified interests. So if which is why countries that are part of a regular military wear uniforms, it identifies them as official sponsors of government military activity. And there are supposed to be protections that go along with that if these are countries that that abide by these concepts in the law of armed conflict. Now, <clears throat> some of this, interestingly, goes back to, um, you know, you don't you often don't think of uh, moral or ethical considerations being incorporated into how warfare is conducted, but it it's really has always been an overarching theme. I mean, we, you know, that's part of when you're doing target selection, you shouldn't, you know, we heard about this in the Gulf War, you know, was there, or wasn't there a bombing of a baby milk factory? Well, it turns out there wasn't, it was a, you know, a military target that had in English baby milk factory printed on the side just for obvious public opinion manipulation. But the, the idea being that true military targets have military value if there is no military value, it's a civilian target and should not be targeted. Unless you make the kind of argument that the U.S. did when we targeted Hiroshima and Nagasaki, it being that the... But again, that was part of the the, the genesis of our understanding of working restraint into this process. But going back historically, the way that warfare used to be conducted was... It, it's almost comical that... Um, You know, even going back to the Revolutionary War and and war conflicts that happened before then, the idea of an unfair advantage was something that to traditional military um, analysts and military leaders was something that was, you know, not necessarily... (laughs) Fair, <laughs> and in this sort of gentlemanly way of uh, conducting warfare. I mean, yes, there were surprise attacks. Yes, there was espionage. We know that there were spies, even going back in the Revolutionary War, of course. But the overall concept that uh, to do something too sneaky you know, might might interrupt the integrity of that nation's standing. Now, the Revolution is a little bit different, but I think the best example I can give is that World War One began with um, right at the time when there was a lot of techno- technological advancement that was present that had not been present before, including the efficient use of machine guns. I mean, there had been machine guns in the past. Even in the Civil War, there were, you know, remember Gatling guns. But, you know, the, the use of efficient machine guns that could be carried by, you know, normal troops combined with... This was an era where flight was new. Flying planes was a new, relatively new phenomenon. And there was debate amongst military leaders as to whether it would be ethical, fair, you know, to fly a plane over... The enemy line. I mean, this concept that you, you know, the line's supposed to be there, and you're supposed to fight over it, and it's supposed to be, you know, we're trying to kill them, they're trying to kill us, and that's how the territory is established. And you stay on this side, they stay on that side, that's how the war goes, right? Well, the concept of taking off in an airplane and flying right over all that stuff, there was pause. There, there, were People thought, well, wait, you know, does that change balance in such a way so that it upsets, you know, this equilibrium, more or less. And if we do something like that, is it gonna trigger the other side thinking, well that's not fair. We're gonna do something that's not fair. Um well, you know, so that's how we see the use of chemical weapons coming into play. Um and as warfare has evolved, technology becomes something that as we make those advancements, the the self-restraint behind whether it's morally or ethically proper to do so um, changes. So, I mean, uh, that's why I say I'm not sure if there really is any such thing as the law of armed conflict anymore. Also, just showing my age here, but going back to when I um, used to be an instructor in this area, it was a different world in the sense that there had been very few examples of... Having to identify the enemy as a, a non-sovereign country, uh, and what I'm talking about here is is terrorism from uh, either a state-sponsored or non-state, in many cases non-state-sponsored terrorist group. So let's let's use Al Qaeda or ISIS as an example. That's not a country, and they don't wear uniforms, <laughs> and they don't abide by any rules. So you know the whole premise of keeping nations at peace or at least uh, a road towards de-escalation doesn't apply at all in that context because the distinction between combatants and non-combatants is gone um in that scenario well likewise cyber attack cyber warfare is something that is indiscriminate well it's discriminate but it targets civilians it does and that's that's the whole point so one has to wonder if you know we've gone into an era where those things just don't matter now the the theory behind restraint and it's even you can even find reference to it in the art of war by sun tzu um the ability to bend rather than be rigid provides strength and it's it's not just sun tzu but it's also really just a philosophical way of, of dealing with uh, um the ability to react in such a way that you have uh, you can absorb and deal with the situation that's presented to you rather than having a firm plan. So one of the main reasons that um, Germany failed to advance as they thought they would was because they in World War One is that they stuck to a day-by-day plan and they intended to be occupying Paris by day 46 or whatever it was in the plan. So that's an example of rigidity that doesn't, uh, when it goes awry, you know, the flexibility isn't there. But, you know, it's still a concept that um, having, depending on how hard the line in the sand is and whether there are opportunities to uh, negotiate whether economic sanctions really work or not, especially in this context, is up Per grabs. I'm not convinced they do. But boy, I mean, hopefully this all just kind of fizzles. But here we are on the precipice of something that could be, you know, a very challenging era yet to come. One thing that Putin's right about is that if he raises the ire of, you know, a, a coalition or a, an alliance, yes, the nature of alliances is that we defend each other and He's worried about that, and he should be, because that's what's supposed to prevent him from doing what he's doing. Anyway, that's all the time we have for this week. Uh, Stay tuned. We'll see what happens, and hopefully have an update on this and other legal stuff next week right here on 1330 and 101.5 WHBL. This is Legal Defense with Kirk and John. Have a great weekend.